0: Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast and I guest today uh, is Philip Bourne. Um, he's the Stevenson Chair of Data Science, uh, the Director of the Data Science Institute, and a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at uh, Virginia. So Phil, uh, looking at your bio, it's so extensive that probably would be better if, uh, if I asked you more about your background directly, but I want to welcome you first. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, tell me a, a little bit more about your background, because I can see it's super extensive, and uh, maybe you can uh, relate <laughs> it far better than I could.
1: Well, that just means I'm very old. Um, uh, <laughs> no I, <wise>. uh, <laughs> I, uh, I actually was born in the UK, and I grew up in Australia. So my, um, which means no one understands me at all. But um, I, uh, I did all my uh, undergraduate and graduate work. Uh, in Australia. I have a PhD in uh, physical chemistry, uh, which is very little to do, to do with what I do these days, but uh, that's the yeah. way it goes. Um, I then went on uh, to postdoc in, and my PhD was really in, uh, looking at uh, crystallography uh, and structural related uh, materials, particularly organic compounds. And then um, I went to uh, the UK, the University of Sheffield, and I worked on, uh, in. Um, biological macromolecules. So I was working, uh, actually trying to understand um, the. I, we looked at ferritin, which is the body a body's iron storage protein. So we were trying to understand the structure function relationship, particularly as it relates to uh, d- different uh, diseases in iron metabolism. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was a lot of fun. We we learned a lot about uh, you know iron metabolism and during that uh, very interesting molecule. It was the early days of This sort of uh, macromolecular crystallography, so it was quite challenging in those days. Um, Then I went on to uh, Columbia University in in New York, where I was working on again structural biology of postsynaptic neurotoxins. And then my life took, I guess, a a fork in the road. And I I was complaining to the dean uh, in the medical school about the state of computing uh, at Columbia. And he said, well, what would it cost us to fix it? So I said, well, you know, start with a million dollars and we'll go from there. Uh, I ended up running a computer center um, uh, for uh, the medical school. So that was sort of a divergence. I published several books on computing and things like that. And then um, I don't know if I'm going on too long about this. It. Just cut me off for you. Um, and then, uh, you know, I got intrigued by the whole notion of the Human Genome Project and how that was very tied uh, to computation. And we developed algorithms for sort of assembly. Um, and that sort of, you know, opened my eyes to what was really going to be the future of, in my opinion, of, of biomedicine, which it was going to become, and it took quite a while, but it was going to become very computationally driven, very analytically driven. So um, you know, I kind of pursued that. I uh, decided that was not the best place to do that kind of work. So I went to UC San Diego, uh, where I was there for twenty years. And I became I, I particularly studied systems pharmacology there. Uh, I was involved with running a resource called the Protein Data Bank, which was a sort of a collection of all this all this uh, structural information at least. Uh, and then I got interested in what you could do with. Um, uh, you know, from the point of view of translation into the private sector, I formed a number of startups while I was there, and that then led me to becoming the associate vice chancellor for innovation. Then went from there to be the, uh, which I can talk a lot more about, but I get a sense I shouldn't go on too long about this. I was the chief data, the first chief data officer of the National Institutes of Health, and then a year and a half ago, I came to the University of Virginia, where I'm uh, uh, developing a whole data science institute and an initiative across the whole of campus. So the the most
0: outrageous question you ever could be asked by the scientific community is, what have you done for us lately? Because you've done so much.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but speaking of which, what so what's your current initiative? What's uh, your fascination right now? What are you working on?
1: Um, so I've kind of broadened away from just biomedicine, and, and I'm really intrigued by the whole development of data science, um, which is kind of what I've been doing some degree all along, so it sounds a bit silly. Except it's it's really reached the mainstream, and I think the excitement is that they're you know it's bringing data together from disparate sources to do things that sometimes are actually unimaginable. And mm. um, and there are al- new algorithms and improved some of which have been around for a long time, but they've improved. We've got you know we've got these graphical processing units now, which are much faster than computing. Capabilities, so it's really opening up, you know. And frankly, it's beginning to what drives what's driving modern society. Um, you know, companies today can't, you know, unless, unless they're analysing their own data or making decisions uh, in within their companies based on what they're doing, what their own data is telling them. They're falling behind. So it's, yep. uh, you know, it's a huge opportunity. And you know, we're churning out graduates that just. You know, they get that, they get jobs months before they graduate um, with outrageously high salaries. So it's uh, you know it's kind of a, a, just a very interesting time.
0: Well, the field is really expansive. So what area in it are you focusing on? There's
1: well, know, the all institute kinds of data. I run it actually covers everything. So you know everything from uh, you know digital humanities, social sciences to biomedicine, of course, um, to engineering uh financial transport energy you name it environment uh we have projects going on across that whole space and what's really interesting is when you you know you combine data from different sources so for example you know we i'll just give you a quick example when we're Mm. looking at you know we have you know we've been exploring ozone levels in the blue ridge mountains here in virginia and that's done from static uh you know sensors that sit on poles in the in the in the mountains here well some of our students uh who love working with drones uh essentially managed to mount them on drones, deal with vortex issues, and now gathering geospatial data across uh whole uh you know whole environment so you know we've got so we've combined engineering computer science, and environmental data to to learn new things about ozone levels across many different terrains, uh, which would have not happened without bringing these students together from different, you know, from computer science and environmental science. So that kind of stuff is, uh, for me, really exciting. Okay. um,
0: So what do you see that data science needs in order to be more effective? I mean, I guess there's a couple things happening is now more and more sensors are out there and more and more data is being collected, but I'm not sure if uh, the interpretation of it is going to, Keep pace with it. Just you know, again, I'm only one person, but it just seems like there's so much data out there. Who's going to analyze it all? Who's going to look at it all? So it seems like uh, it's just an abundance of it that something needs to be done with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's well, there's lots of issues surrounding the data. I mean, we're we're building ourselves on five pillars, um, uh, and you know, so the first pillar is data acquisition, which, as you say, there's. There's no end to the sources of data. There's often lots of issues surrounding that data. And then the second pillar is data engineering, which is really a major component of what you, at least where you spend the time, which is, you know, really um, munging the data to get it into a use of, usable form. And, you know, I think one of the ideas that we have here is the notion of open data. So when we do that, you know, we give that back to the community. So that Already is a a big step up in the sense that this data has been vetted and analyzed and and, uh, Documented in some way and it's findable. So we have a notion Mm -hmm. of an open data lab doing that and then the third pillar is this uh, You know the actual analytics um, and clearly machine learning various types of machine learning natural language processing techniques uh, Are allowing us to do much more and then there's the visualization and dissemination um and then there's the ethics, uh, the final pillars, the ethics policy and law associated with uh, how we use data and, and so, you know, all that, the whole Facebook uh, privacy issues around health data and so on. Um, okay. So, I, yeah, there is, I think the, we work in accordance with what we call the FAIR principles, which is the ability to find, access, interoperate and reuse data and of course we find a lot of the a lot of what we look at doesn't conform to the fair principles so uh you know to the, to your question it is a problem and uh, i think over time you know you start to see uh quality reference data sets appear uh, uh which have a lot of value and it actually makes you think about what's valuable within the academic system here where you know what's more valuable a paper that no one reads or a, a well-formed data set that 100 people use. Um, Hmm. The problem is that the the system of reward does not necessarily reward that good data set, but they'll reward a crappy paper. So what can I say? The system's broken.
0: Well, what about in the interpretation of the data, even when it is interpreted? Like you said, data science is in high demand. So what are some things that um, confound data or confound the analysis of it? What's important?
1: Yeah, well, there are there lots of confounders, and you know, often it's not clear, you know, what what features you need to be. You can do so-called unsupervised learning, so you're not actually sure. You might get some uh, results, some form of clustering of the data, but you don't really know why that happened. So there's a lot of danger associated with that. Um, on the other hand, you know, without if you actually uh, sort of do feature selection, so you're really Doing supervised learning of some form, then um, you know you don't necessarily know you're looking for the right thing. So it's it's, uh, it's it's a tricky situation. I think the key is, and this is where I think what distinguishes data science uh, from other forms of, say, computer science is that you know data scientists are typically trained to work uh, in a specific domain, so they understand something about uh, the data that um, that they're analysing, and whether the results in fact have some form of meaning, and you know, I think that that knowledge is is really critical to be uh, to be effective in using this kind of data. So, I, you know, I, when someone asks me that, to me, that's some sort of distinguishing feature. It may not be that they're developing the algorithms; they're just applying them, but they understand the implications of that application in a certain domain. It could be biomedicine, but it could be others, of course. Are there yet off-the-shelf um, data
0: analysis packages that work with all kinds of data to make it easier for people, so they just have to worry about collecting it and then connecting it to off-the-shelf packages?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's you know the extent the extent of MATLAB, R, and Python tools, uh, which are the sort of um, bread and butter of data science. Uh, you know, there's lots of tools that do all sorts of things, everything from you know deep learning to various types of regression and so on uh, statistical methodologies so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of tools out there Um, and that's I think something else that's propelled the field that combined with you know resources like github which actually enable people to search and find uh, code and essentially use code that's been to some degree crowdsourced Uh, these are all you know really positive developments and then you know, things like using Jupyter notebooks to actually document and embed code into uh from the point of view of creating a re- reproducible framework uh for the work is you know I think another example that, um, of um of where things are headed which I think are very is very important. So there there is this uh this coalescence of knowledge around you know tools and data uh and uh you know, platforms that support all of that. So I think it's it's it, it's a time. You know, it's definitely a different era because of that. You said that society, you know, whether we know it or not, or like it or not, I guess
0: is is being run by data. So you know, what evidence do you see that that points to that? What's interesting but, to you that jumps out of you now that you're in this field?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious ones are the things we read about in the newspaper, which are, are things like you know what 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 you can learn about someone, you know from what Google know about people from what they search, they know things that once, you know, loved ones don't even know uh, by virtue of the searches that people conduct, and that's just the, you know, tip of the iceberg of social data that's actually uh, gathered and used. Which of course is what gets all the attention. But you know, I mean, we've just uh, Amazon have just announced that they're opening uh, you know, they're part of their second headquarters here in Virginia. And, you know, if you imagine just what companies like that do, I mean, their whole the, the whole uh, productivity of the company is, is built around data analysis and uh, how they move packages around, how they how they actually define how you purchase, what you purchase, uh, all that data is being collected and used. And that's, you know, again, another fairly uh, obvious example. I'll give you a, a, a much less obvious example, but one I like a lot because it, it says a lot about the field. So, uh, not that long ago, um, a trauma surgeon came to see me in my office who works here in the medical centre. And he was asking me about various aspects of data science because what he noticed from doing trauma surgeries over the years, many of which are related to uh, car accidents. That there's a, a, you know, he noticed a a correlation between the type of accident and ultimately what was discovered about the type of internal injury. Well, the problem is when someone comes into the emergency room, uh, you don't necessarily, you you know, these injuries are internal, and if you don't know anything about the accident, it's hard to know how to begin the treatment. So you basically do a full body scan, and you know, occasionally patients die in the scanner. If you knew. Uh, what kind of accident they've been in when they arrived at the emergency room, you might be able to intervene in a different way. Uh, So he's been trying to look at this from a quantitative way. He went to the Department of Motor Vehicles, got a whole bunch of public data about accidents uh, in uh, Virginia, then correlated that with information he had access to in electronic health record, uh, and indeed found correlations or is finding correlations. He now wants to take that to the next step. The idea is making intervention, um, so that when someone shows up in the emergency room, you know, the the emergency services have already radioed ahead or videoed or texted or whatever it it is, the kind of accident that took place. And so the treatment regime would be uh, based on this, uh, you know, essentially this this predictive modelling. Yeah, I see you'd want to get data, if you could,
0: directly from the car itself. At some point, you could see all the parameters of the accident. Yeah, well, that's With the hospital, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, of course, they don't don't want to reveal that information. Um, I mean, most cars now have a black box that, you know, I wouldn't say it's quite up to an airplane standard, but, um, you know, it records a lot of information, acceleration, deceleration, uh, you know, particular movements that would indicate a certain type of accident. Uh, that, you know, would be very useful in this regard. Um, unfortunately, that, that you know, data like that is coveted by the company, um, partly to improve their own product, but partly to protect themselves probably, which brings in so the whole else, ethical question.
0: <laughs> hmm. hey, what else do you know about data that, that other people don't know? Or, you know, maybe you could talk about, you know, a few other projects, and what's really interesting to you about them data-wise?
1: Um. Well, I mean, my own particular research interest is uh, in using uh, proteomics type data, which is data on, you know, on, on proteins and, and things of that nature. So, it you know, and we we try and apply it in um, in the context of drug discovery. So, you know, one of the, the the way drug discovery and drugs have been designed for many years follows the, the what was called the Ehrlich notion of uh, One drug uh, aimed at one target, typically a protein in the body, and uh, with having one effect, which hopefully is a positive effect on a different, uh, a particular health condition. Of course, it turns out you only have to listen to the uh, commercial on the televisions when you hear the reaming off the side effects that come from drugs. You know that that's not actually what's happening at all. In fact, what's happening is that drug is Actually binding to a number of these protein receptors and having some kind of collective effects on a complex system. And so the more you understand about that complex system, which involves collecting data at different biological scales, uh, the more you can do to design uh, drugs that actually mitigate uh, side effects as much as possible. So in that case, you're collecting data from you know from the genomic level all the way. Uh, up to the the level of uh, the individual and um and so you know this brings into play the whole notion of precision medicine uh, because first of all not only do there's a side effects that everybody has there's also side effects only certain people whether it relate it's related to gender or ethnicity uh or actually even body mass and other kinds of things uh, that are get get affected so you know this one this idea of one one treatment for all is just not right. And we're now refining uh, what we do and how we think about this. Um, and that notion of precision, you can imply not just to medicine, but you can think about it in precision education. I mean, effectively, in a very coarse way, we all get the same kind of education. and It doesn't cater to our individual needs. But as we start measuring more and more data about, say, students in the classroom, Including you know everything ranging from uh individual transcripts or, you know performance to uh just things like measuring eye movement of students and how attentive they are to what the teacher is saying uh these are you know it's more data that's being starting to be collected at least in a, a research environments, to, to see how effective this these kinds of uh data are uh you know all sorts of things can be determined from that. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of privacy and uh, implications surrounding that. But those are just a couple of other things. I was
0: going to say, that jumps out at me. You know, there's data that you create where it comes from you. And that's, you know, I guess should be personal. But um, it also has an element to it that can contribute to the greater good. So it sounds like data rights are going to be hugely important. And depending on the type of data, you wonder who's going to have rights to it and how and Take like the car example you know could the government or should the government compel car manufacturers in case of an accident to provide that data you know immediately you know have a back door for them so that it could be provided to medical you know people that treat them medically
1: yeah i mean you're absolutely right there's uh, i think there's this this balance that we've yet to really come to grips with between uh the good and the bad that comes from from data uh or can come from data And uh, you know, in in the end of the day, I think it's you know we don't even know. You know, if I ask if I ask you, you, when you go to the doctor, who own and you know you have some kind of uh, test that's returned in electronic form, who owns that data? Is it you? It seems like uh, them
0: because it's
1: hard to get from them at all. (laughs) Well, is it yeah? Is it the insurance company? Is it the care provider? Is it the where where who the care provider works for? Is it the patient? Um, you know, it's 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 not these things are not necessarily very clear at all. And in fact, you know, you have a right to a copy of your data. That that's essentially part of HIPAA. But what they, you know, there's obviously consenting for use of that data for other purposes. But in terms of you know who owns it, it's uh, it's it's not necessarily clear. Um, and you could you know you can imagine you can say that with regard to you know many different types of data. So I think these, you know, the kind of legislation that's coming from Europe now, um, I think begins to sort of address this, this, this these kinds of questions. Um, but we've, we've got a long way to go.
0: Definitely, yeah. Any, um, you know, from your data on uh, proteins, you know, proteomics, I guess you called it. You know, any surprises or really amazing insights, or maybe other projects you worked on. You know, things that just a really interesting conversation for you to talk about.
1: Um, well, not so much in, um, uh, in, in, the, in what I described to you with respect to drug discovery, but I'll give you an example from evolution. Um, you know, it's absolutely remarkable that, uh, that proteins consist of what's called amino acids. And you can think about them, if you're not a biologist, you could think about them as like beads on a string. And a typical protein is 300 of these beads and the, those beads are of 20 colors because there's 20 different types of amino acid. So that's 20 to the 300 possibilities. That's more than all the atoms in the universe. Um, and yet we, we know all we've discovered on Earth so far is about, I haven't looked recently, but the order of 40 million individual types of proteins. So that's one in tiny, tiny fraction uh, of all possibilities that are found in life. Then what's even more remarkable is that those, those beads on a string, that linear one-dimensional string, actually folds up into a three-dimensional structure. That's what a protein is. And it's that structure-function relationship that um, is important. Interestingly, those 40 million or whatever it is, individual uh, proteins we've discovered fold up into about 1,200 different shapes. So all of life is comprised, you can think of it this way, of 1,200 different jigsaw puzzles pieces, um, everything in, on on planet Earth is, is derived from those pieces. So it you know it when you look at that in the context of evolution, um, inventing a new puzzle puzzle piece is a, a major step in evolution. And we devise ways of actually uh, looking at you know when and how new puzzle pieces were let's just say invented by nature. And we discovered a strong correlation between that invention and changes in the environment. So, uh, when the earth moved, uh, evolved from a reductive to a eugenic to an oxidative environment and became oxygen rich, uh, how, what the kind of proteins that were formed and how they were used in life changed. And so, what this tells you is that the environment has a pretty distinct uh, impact on life, and it's not just over. Very long time scales it can happen happen in bacteria in very short time scales, so uh, you look at cyanobacteria in the ocean that say are near the mouth estuaries of rivers that are flowing uh, metal deposits or from you know industry uh, that changes the nature of that life and so uh, you know the implications of this uh, are pretty huge, and then that the life in, in turn can affect the environment. So it's, uh, there's this, there this crazy notion of the Gaia hypothesis back in the 70s, uh, which is sort of the, the, it's the yin and yang where life and the ecosystem and the, and the environment are sort of combined into one uh, rich system. And you know, you, this starts to show it. So it, it, I don't know, we worked in that a number of years ago. It was really cool, I have to say.
0: Well, I know it's maybe off subject, but I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about proteins. Um, so for, an, for a protein, can it fold three-dimensionally only in one way, or can it fold in different ways and therefore act differently?
1: Well, what's interesting, most of the time, and this is actually one of the unsolved problems, of uh, it's not quite as unsolved as it used to be of uh, uh, molecular biology, is that if you denature a protein, so in other words, say you heat it up and you destroy that three-dimensional shape, if you renature it, that is, if you cool it down, it will assume that typically speaking it'll assume that uh, that same shape. So everything inherent in that shape is embodied in that one-dimensional sequence, that particular sequence. Wow. The problem is that given this redundancy, that you know the, you can you cannot tell that two proteins they, they diverge so much in sequence and yet they still fold up into a, a the same shape. So the question is, you know, can can we actually predict what that shape's going to be? This has implications for protein engineering and and things like that. Um, If we could engineer proteins. So in other words, if if we've only occupied a small fraction of this potential space, uh, fold space, that nature could have adopted, why haven't we? Are there stable proteins that we can engineer that nature hasn't that could could have implications in healthcare and... Environment, in food growth, goodness knows what else, in energy. And, you know, I think the answer is probably well, that certainly such proteins have been engineered. And so I think it, you know, it offers enormous uh, potential for the future if we could understand more about this relationship. And it may be that deep learning. <laughs> so uh, it's very interesting that um, this was just a snippet in the newspaper uh a year or so ago. When uh, Google announced AlphaGo, which was uh, their deep learning uh, based uh, AI technology, uh, was actually not only initially able to beat the world's best Go player, but then they built a version of the software that actually learned not from the Go players, but it learned from the previous algorithm (laughs) uh, and actually beat the previous algorithm and so it's you know this this powerful machine learning tool and right at the bottom of this newspaper article about this was it and now it's being this algorithm is being applied to the protein folding problem so in other words if we can we learn from what we know in nature already uh to actually solve this long standing problem in biology the answers the, the answers still out but um we're we are looking at it uh in a, in a uh, in our own way, but many, a number of other researchers okay. doing the same thing.
0: Amazing. Well, very good. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot more to possibly talk to you about, uh, but for now we're out of time. So what's what's the best way for interested parties to reach out and to, you know, and engage with you or the lab or some of your projects? Uh, probably
1: by email. Uh, so uh, my email is peb6a at virginia.edu.
0: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Philip, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting. Sure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Almost Here, around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.